We'll be looking this morning at Isaiah chapters 34 and 35. Isaiah chapters 34 and 35. And I'll read uh, both of these chapters to us today. Before we begin, let me remind you, this is God's good and gracious, His kind word to you this morning. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction." The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Borzrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is none, no one there to call it a kingdom, and its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall go, grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow, indeed, There the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young and her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with a line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weakened hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will say, come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us uh, this word today, and we pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord, we need to see more clearly Jesus Christ. That Our focus should be and needs to be on him as our only way of salvation. And I pray that this passage would help us uh, with that today, that by your grace and mercy, uh, we would see the glory of Jesus Christ, that we would flee from the terrors of hell into the loving arms of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A few months ago, Amy and I watched the musical Hamilton. Now, if you haven't seen the musical, that's okay. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what it's about. Uh, you don't even have to, have to see the, the musical to understand it. It's about Alexander Hamilton and his part in the founding of our nation. Um, so uh, with Alexander Hamilton, it, it covers all of the other casts of characters, uh, the historical figures that were there at that time, George Washington, John Lorenz, and uh, various others play an important role, Thomas Jefferson, among others. Uh, but one of the most important figures uh, in that musical and in Alexander Hamilton's life uh, was the man Aaron Burr Jr. Now, uh, when I saw the musical, I immediately wanted to learn more about uh, the men that founded our country, and I began to do some research on them. And I read a biography of Aaron Burr Jr. And I discovered or I remembered uh, and was reminded that Aaron Burr Jr. Uh, had a fascinating life uh, and... Uh, his, well, one of the lines in the musical, he says that my father was a fire, or my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. And I thought, oh my goodness, Aaron Burr, his grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. I wondered who that was. So I read the biography, biography, found out his father, Aaron Burr Sr., was one of the original founders of Princeton College, Princeton University. It was a seminary to train Presbyterian ministers. Aaron Burr was a Presbyterian. His father, a Presbyterian minister. His mother was Sarah Edwards, who was the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, who was widely renowned as the greatest mind that has ever come out of, of the Americas. And Jonathan Edwards was a famous preacher. Uh, you probably, no doubt, if you can remember all the way back to high school, you probably studied some about Jonathan Edwards. He is a very important figure in the founding of our nation prior to the Revolutionary War. Uh, and, uh, and he was a preacher, uh, and God used him mightily in the First Great Awakening in this nation. But I remember back to high school, and I remember reading a sermon about Jonathan, uh, from Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I prob- most of you, if you have probably read that sermon If you haven't, you should read it. It's an excellent sermon. But it's sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, And in that sermon, uh, he talks about uh, hell and damnation and all of those things. But he also talks about 
how we can or how we are saved in Christ. And I remember how it was taught to me in high school. It was taught as if that sermon was a very typical puritanical fundamentalist style of sermon meant to scare people into good behavior. I remember even in high school reading that sermon going, that's not what this sermon is about at all. This sermon is about Jesus Christ. This sermon is about his saving sinners. So all of these things kind of condensed in my head and I remembered, oh, wait a second. When the world hears anything about hell, damnation, the fires and the pits of hell and all of that stuff, they immediately, oh, that's just fire and brimstone. It's trying to scare people into good behavior. And that's why in the musical Hamilton, they say, my, father was, my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. But in my mind, Jonathan Edwards was not a fire and brimstone preacher. He preached the realities of hell, but also the realities of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, all of that is a very long way around of saying our passage today is about hell and heaven. And Isaiah is holding up for us this picture of hell and a picture of heaven here in the Old Testament. Last week, we saw that a major shift occurred in this fourth cycle of Isaiah. Eventually, or finally, the Judeans had repented of their sin and God began to pour out his grace and promised even more of his grace uh, on the Judeans by rising up and fighting for them. Now in these chapters, Isaiah kind of skips to the very end of time. And again, he holds up these two pictures, one of hell and one of heaven. And he says, this is what's going to happen to all of the enemies of Yahweh. And this is what's going to happen to those that trust in him. Now, chapter 34 is full of harsh imagery, and it's a lot of things that we may not want to dwell on. Uh, And that's fair. I don't like dwelling on these things either. But the reality is this is God's word, and he wants us to see what is in store for those that hate him. And then also what is in store for those that trust in him. What's hell like, what's heaven like. So those are the two points today. First of all, we see the night hell, and the sinner's final destruction. And then secondly, we're going to see the day, heaven, and the saint's final home. So first of all, night and hell's uh, night or hell's sinner, the sinner's final destruction in chapter 34. All right, so chapter 34 is structured around four different scenes. And I want to look at each of those scenes or each of those pictures in turn. The first picture you see in verses 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6. At the very beginning of verse 6, you'll see there that the Lord has a sword. What's this picture? Isaiah is showing us an image of God as a warrior holding up a sword. And what does it have? What, What does it have on it? That it has his defeated enemies' blood and guts all over the sword. That's the first picture. Well, why does Isaiah show us this image? Well, verse 2, he says this, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. That word enraged is the word for foaming. For the Lord is foaming against the nations. It's like if you go to the sea and you watch the ocean on a a rough day or, or in some places where there's a rocky coastline and the sea smashes up against the rocks and what happens it foams up it bubbles up and it creates this kind of foam or 
If you're cooking pasta on the stove and you walk away for a, for a moment, away from the, the roiling, bubbling stove and the pasta boils over the side and it makes that terrible hissing noise, that's the image that you get here, that the Lord has foaming anger for his enemies. Well, why? Why is he so angry at them? Well, the Lord is angry at the nations because they have rejected Yahweh. And they have sought to destroy his people in Yahweh's plan of redemption. So what has the Lord done? Look at verse 2 at the very end. He has devoted them to destruction and he has given them over for slaughter. And then at verse 5 again, he repeats that. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. This is the word that you see all over the Old Testament. For he has placed them under the ban. When God brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus event, he commanded his people. He said, I'm giving you this land. Go in and utterly destroy all of the Canaanites. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Get rid of them. Or place, because he says, I have placed them under the ban. This is a religious uh, slaughter of these people. This is divine judgment from God using his own people in order to accomplish this divine judgment. That's what you see there in, uh, in the Exodus event. But now here, what we see in chapter 34 is that God is saying that there's not going to be a secondary instrument of my judgment, but now, God says, I will be my own instrument. I'm going to pick up the sword and I will bring justice against my enemies. And he's going to devote all the national enemies to destruction. But you also see in these verses, this isn't merely a, uh, uh, an earthly judgment because he says in verse 4, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away. These are the spiritual beings that live in the heavenly places, the, the enemies of God in the heavenly places that even now are making war against God and his people today. God says, I'm going to turn my attention to them. I'm going to slaughter them. They're going to fall from heaven, it says, like, uh, like leaves falling from the vine because he is slaughtering them from the heavens. And then once his sword, in verse 5, has drunk its fill in the heavens, it's going to descend upon Edom. He deals with the rebellion in heaven and then finally one day he will deal with the rebellion on earth. And then... Um, what Isaiah begins to do in verse 6, he begins to blend that first picture with a second picture. Uh, Look at the end of verse 6. This is the second picture. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Borzrah. So the first picture is the Lord with the sword, but now this sword picture is kind of morphing into a picture of not just a slaughter or a war, but it's a sacrifice that's taking place. And we're told where that sacrifice takes place. It's in, it's in uh, Bozrah of Edom. Anybody ever been to Bozrah of Edom? No, probably not. Uh, it's the capital city of the nation of Edom. And you need to remember back earlier in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah mentioned the nation of Edom and the Lord was so angry at Edom. And you think, well, why is God so angry at Edom? Well, they're the cousins of the Israelites. What in the world? Why is he so angry at them? Well, here again, Isaiah is holding up Edom as this stereotypical enemy of God. Well, why is that? 
in the Exodus event once again, God had told his people, I will redeem a people for myself. I am bringing redemption on the earth through you, the Israelites. You were to go into Canaan and spread my good news. And as they were about to enter into the land of Canaan, they come to Edom, again, their cousins. And Edom says, you cannot come through. We refuse passage through our land. And so, and so what did God say? Essentially, Edom is refusing to carry out the plan of redemption or to help God in his plan of redemption on the earth. And so you need to remember that anyone that stands in the way of God or his people is just like Edom, refusing to help God in his plan of redemption. So God says, I have a sacrifice, and this is a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice of people uh, who are enemies of God. And God says, I'm going to make a sacrifice out of them. And then the third picture that you see, the third picture is in uh, verses 8 through 14. And there you find out the Lord has a day of vengeance. The Lord has set aside a day of vengeance. Now, some of you uh, are very meticulous in writing things down and keeping a calendar. And you know that on such and such a day, you have a doctor's appointment. So you have a day set aside for that. The Lord has a calendar as well. And the Lord says, I have a day set aside for what? For vengeance. And then in the next line, it says he has a year. He has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense. And you go, well, what is it? Is it a day or is it a year? Well, then if you read a little bit further down, he says, this will last forever. Is it a day? Is it a year? Is it forever? Well, the answer is yes. That God's vengeance on the earth is going to begin on one day. And that day will last into a year, and that year will last into forever. And it's a way of saying that God's vengeance, as he brings it on the earth to bring judgment on all of his enemies, it's going to be a forever um, uh, picture, uh, or forever uh, judgment, an eternal judgment. And it's interesting, all the various things that you read in here, uh, you read a, basically a zoo of animals. Uh, because in the cities of Edom, in all of these civilized places, which you find out, is that, um, uh, that the, uh, all of the, the, the wild animals are taking over. I mean, you didn't think today that you'd hear about ostriches and porcupines, but here it is in God's Word. And these are unclean animals that are being able to run over the land because God is bringing His judgment. And then the fourth picture that you see is actually in verse... Um, in verse 16, for the mouth of the Lord has a command. He has given a command. The fourth picture is that the Lord has a command. And in this picture, you see the totality, the totality and the inevitability of the destruction that is coming for the enemies of the Lord. We're told here in verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord. In the ancient times, when you wrote something down in a book, it meant that it was final. It was the final word. It would not be changed. God is saying that in times past, in eternity past, He planned a judgment for His enemies. Their destruction has been planned from long ago. And because it's been written down, nothing will change that destruction. No one who has written in that book will escape the judgment. Well, all of these things are things that the Lord has for those that refuse Him. 
And you might be saying, well, I'm not an Edomite. My people are from Western Europe. I should be okay. Well, not so fast. You see, you might still very well be an Edomite here this morning. Because it's not a matter of your physical family line. It's a matter of your spiritual family tree. The Lord has said there is one name by which men and women can be saved. Only one. And that is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in and through his sacrifice that men and women are saved. But an Edomite believes that he or she is going to be saved by his own good works. A few years ago, the lead singer for the band Fun wrote these lyrics speaking to God. He said, I passed a a chapel last night and I shuddered to think what happened inside. I'll die for my own sins. Thanks a lot. See, here's this lead singer of fun, understanding something fundamental about the gospel message. I have no doubt that he was raised in a church and he understands the good news of Jesus Christ and what it's all about. That in that chapel where he shuddered and he raised his fist to God saying, I will die for my own sins. He's telling Jesus Christ, I do not want you to die for my sins. Whatever wrath you may have for me, God, I'll take it. And the sad thing is, he knows the good news, but he rejects it. And whatever wrath God has stored up for him, he will indeed face that wrath. He will die. He will be tormented forever. He will suffer the eternal consequences for his pride. What about you? Will you suffer for your pride, believing that you can do enough, you don't need God's help to save yourself? Or will you bend your knee today and receive Jesus Christ as your bloody substitute? That's the first thing we see here in chapter 34. You see hell and the realities of hell. Secondly, in chapter 35, you see heaven and the saints' final home. So whereas before in hell, all of the civilized world is reversed and it becomes uncivilized, in heaven, the opposite thing happens. And we need to remember that in places like Edom or Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, all of these places were the civilized world and they looked down upon places like Judah because they saw them as uncivilized for their religious adherence to God. Well, here, what we're told is in all of these civilized places, there's a reversal. But in heaven, in what the world calls uncivilized, there is civilizing. And where do you see that? Look in verse 1 of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Even in the desert... There's going to be blooms of flowers and fertile ground. We're told that there's going to be rejoicing and singing in the desert, in the wasteland, in the place where nothing previously would grow. God will reverse that for his people and in the wasteland make make things grow. Uh, Look back at chapter uh, 33, verse 9. Back then you saw that Sharon is like a desert 
Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Lebanon is confounded and withered away. Well, now Isaiah returns to these places, Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon and Bashan. And he says, in all of those places, all of their glory is going to be given over to his people. The places like Lebanon and Sharon and Bashan had glory, but now the glory is going to be turned over to God's people. And why is that? Because at the end of verse 2, God's people will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. And then in verse 3, there's another reversal that happens. Edom and the nations are strong at the beginning of judgment. They're the ones with strong armies, mighty armies, lots of resources. But God says that all of those that are his enemies are going to be made weak. And all that are weak at the beginning of this will then be made strong. And why are they made strong? What makes them strong? In verse 4 you see, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. God's people are made strong because God comes to save them. And then at the Lord's salvation, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the mute will sing for joy. All reversals that happen when God comes with His vengeance. There's going to be water in the desert Grass in the burning sands. That's a beautiful picture of the Lord's grace. And then in verse 8, you're told that there's going to be a highway to heaven. We need to remember that the roads in the ancient world were very dangerous places. They were not well marked. They were not paved. They were full of thieves and vagabonds. And if you traveled on one of these roads and the thieves didn't get you, more than likely, the wild animals would. Your only hope was to travel in a pack, travel in numbers, because there was safety in numbers. But what do you find out? That in this highway to heaven, that none of that stuff is going to be there. None of that, none of the dangers will be there. What's the highway going to be called? It's going to be called the way of holiness. That's literally the, the road of the holy ones. And so what do you find out then? That nothing unclean shall pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Uh, Nothing unclean means nothing ritually unclean that will cause you to be unclean before the Lord. No no sin. And there's also going to be no wild animals there. Look at, uh, it says, even if they are fools, at the end of verse 8, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. It's kind of a weird statement. What does that mean? Essentially what that means is, it's, you know, that saying, uh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. It's saying, you know, even a fool will from time to time find the right way to walk. And what Isaiah is saying is not even a fool will be able to find this road. Even if he just happens upon it, it won't, that won't be the case. Only the righteous ones, only the holy ones will be there. So who is there? Who are these righteous ones? Isaiah goes on to tell us. Look at the end of verse 9. There are two types of people that are on this road. The redeemed and the ransomed, the redeemed at the end of verse 9, but the redeemed shall walk there, and at the beginning of verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Who are the redeemed and the ransomed? The word redemption literally means to be bought out of slavery. In the ancient world, you could sell yourself into slavery. Uh, If you had debts, you could sell yourself to the one to whom you owned the debts. And you would work for them until your debts were paid off. But in the meantime, your family could come and if they paid the right amount, they could buy you, 
redeem you out of your slavery. And that is how Isaiah describes those that can walk on the road of holiness. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans uh, that that Christ has redeemed us out of the bondage of sin. Christ came to buy us back at the price of his blood. Secondly, the ransomed are there. To be ransomed uh, is similar to being redeemed, but with a slight variation. God's people have to be and are redeemed and ransomed. Ransom means this, that a price is paid to actually set you free because of the price that's paid is your substitute. So what are we finding out here? The highway to heaven, those that are in heaven. Heaven is populated by those who have been bought with a price and have been set free by a substitute. Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1? It is for freedom that you have been set free. Stand firm then and do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. If Christ has set you free and you are free indeed in Christ, then you are walking on this road. So are you walking on the road of holiness? Maybe you say, well, I don't know. Well, the good news is Isaiah gives us a diagnostic test to find out. He says at the end of verse 10 that the redeemed and the ransomed, they come into Zion singing that everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and and weeping shall flee. Does that describe you? Gladness and joy are marks of the Christian life. Joy that surpasses all circumstances. Joy that is set because we are settled in Christ. Do you have that joy that surpasses your circumstances? Maybe say, well, I don't know if I have that joy. Ask someone close to you. Ask your husband, your wife, your children, loved ones, your coworkers. Do you see joy in me that surpasses my circumstances? Well, do you want to be on the way of holiness? There's one way to be on the way. John, John 14, Jesus is having uh, a final exchange, a final teaching moment with his disciples. And he's talking to them about what's going to happen to him on the next day, on the day of his crucifixion. And he says this, this is what he says. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. How are you to get on the way of holiness? The way of holiness is Jesus Christ. Go to him and you will be on the way of holiness. You will have your everlasting reward in Jesus for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today and we pray that you would help us uh, to be in Jesus, to trust in him and not in ourselves. Pray that we would not be Edomites, trusting in our own provisions and our own resources, not shaking our fist at the Lord saying, we'll do it ourselves. Father, we need you to do it for us. We need, we need Jesus and we need your spirit. Give us these things today. 
And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close.